Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Episode 5 of the Unarchived History Podcast. I'm Misha. And I'm Dan. So this is our final episode of this series, isn't it, Dan? It certainly is. We wanted to bring you all a five-part mini-series where we take you to North, South, East and West London, learning about some of the forgotten histories, and I hope that we've done just that. Me too. So come on then, what was your favourite location in general? And more specifically, what was your favourite site? Well, I would have to say that visiting Portobello Road and learning about the deep cultural impact that West London has had on London and the country in general was definitely the most interesting to me. I spend so much time and I I live quite close to the area, so I really had no idea before the podcast just how much has happened there. What about you, Misha? What have you uh, taken away from this mini-series? Oh, I'm just so indecisive. I mean, I feel like I've changed every week. I started with Camden, then Notting Hill, but I'm going to stick with Greenwich. That was my favourite. I just really love the nautical theme and you couldn't beat that Roman temple that we discovered as well. Um, my favourite site itself was Carnival because... Um, just the fact that it wasn't just one person that started the movement, it was a team effort over time. I really like that. Yeah, no, there was just so much going on in, in West London, Notting Hill as well. It was, it was my favourite place that we looked into. And it was so easy to research as well. The kind of, all the information was there and the people were so helpful. It was great. Fantastic. And um, we've had a busy week, haven't we, Dan? Because last week we were performing at Shout Out Live. Yeah, we were. It was great. Really, really enjoyed the experience performing live and uh, had a great time telling the crowd all about our podcast and, and sharing some of the history around Brixton. I had a great time too. It was great to see all the other podcast shows and also to meet um, the, all the audience and people that listen to our show. But tell me, Dan, back to us, what are we going to cover today? So today we are located in the borough of Hackney, Shoreditch. It's an up-and-coming inner-city district showcasing a diverse community from Vietnamese food to the local 24-hour bagel shop in Brick Lane. The area has seen a drastic change from its medieval past. Beautiful churches once stood there, including one of the wealthiest 13th-century nunneries, Holywell Priory. In Tudor times, Shoreditch was an entertainment hub with the Curtain Theatre in regular use. In 1601, when Elizabeth I imposed a limit on building new houses in the city, this didn't stop the development of the wealthy area Hoxton, just up the road, and London's very own tech city also borders today's location. Misha, can you please show us that there's uh, more to Shoreditch than just hipsters? (laughs) We begin our journey at Bishop's Gate, named after one of the eight former Roman gates that once marked the entrance into the city of Londinium. The Romans built the London Wall surrounding the city in a sort of semicircle north of the River Thames and there would be entrance points across this wall, Bishop's Gate being one of them. The main road north at this time, the old Road North, which is today called Ermine Street, left from this very spot in Bishop's Gate and so this area is one of the oldest roads into and out of London. The earliest recordings of the gate can be found mentioned in 1210. The gate saw a range of variations since then, 
First in the 1470s, when a German merchant group, the Hansa, rebuilt the gate in exchange for privileges to steel yards in the city. And then again, finally, in 1735. But just 50 years after this, it was demolished for the last time. The only reminder of the former giant doorway are stone bishop mitres displayed at the junction of Wormwood Street, which you'll have to look really hard for. In the 15th century, King Richard III used Crosby Hall in Bishopsgate as his palace, demonstrating the importance of the area, especially in medieval times. Originally built by a wool merchant, Jim Crosby, the former palace no longer stands here, but was moved to Chelsea in 1910. During this time, Bishop's Gate was a common entry point for people travelling into London from the shires in the north, with others leaving the city who had journeyed from trading points in the south, Dover and Gravesend. Having already made a long journey, travellers would have to cross the only bridge in London at that time, London Bridge, to continue their journey. The gates would be closed in the night, reopening again in the morning. Bishop's Gate contains some of the oldest surviving history in the country, not only because it has long been an ancient settlement, but also because this part of London was saved from the Great Fire of London in 1666, which claimed a large part of the older history in London. Bishop's Gate alone was not rebuilt after the fire, and so the old timber houses, which were once common, remained here into the future. However, in an expanding city during the Industrial Revolution, space needed to be created, and it was decided to widen the roads in the area, destroying a large part of the once old buildings that stood here. In a bid to record the memory of the buildings and its inhabitants, archivist at the Bishopsgate Institute, Thomas Hugo, took to photographing the area. Leaving a record of the area, this allows us to see the historic, mismatched but perfectly positioned buildings that once stood here. Well, Bishopsgate Library is an independent library that holds specialist and reference collections and it's situated between the City of London and Spitalfields. The library is part of Bishopsgate Institute and that opened in 1895. Yeah, as, as a librarian, it may be cheeky to pick an item from our archive rather than a printed book, but the minute book of Karl Marx's International Working Men's Association, which is otherwise known as the First International from our George Howell archive, is really a hugely inspirational and historic document. It was very controversial at times, particularly after the Russian Revolution, in fact, one of Bishopsgate's governors was so concerned about what he regarded as a blueprint for revolution, he had it banned from use and locked in a bank vault where it remained until the Soviet Union insisted on it being released during World War II. Bishopsgate is a brilliant place to start our Shoreditch journey. It connects the Roman origins of Londinium and the slow transformation of London over the medieval period into a thriving city. Online you can find a historic print of Bishopsgate made in 1650 which showcases the gate's Anglo-Saxon architecture predating London's transition into Tudor and Elizabethan styles of building. And we can only really guess as to what the gate looked like during the Roman period but what we do know is is that it's a great example of the changes that London has undergone throughout the ages. It certainly is. Bishopsgate throughout the century serves as a symbol for Shoreditch and East London in general, now being at the forefront for development and gentrification in London. Bishop's Gate has recently been approved for a massive redevelopment and the building of 12 towers up to 46 storeys high, right next to the historic conservation area. Well, and many people rightly so are concerned that these redevelopments will cause a huge negative impact and even greater gentrification of the East End, with these million pound flats being built as opposed to affordable housing. A petition of 11,000 signatures has been signed in protest to the redevelopment of the area. However, one must ask the question, is such development not simply a natural progression of the area that has always been at the forefront of change? The Romans did it, and then the Tudors, 
And now free market capitalism is forcing change in East London. The first use of Spitalfields Market that we know of was it being used by the Romans as a cemetery. When archaeologists excavated a piece of land beneath the market, they found a wealthy pagan lady had been buried there. Being so close to the centre of Roman Londinium, I'm sure Spitalfields was an important place back then. Not long after the Norman conquest of Britain in 1066, a hospital was built in the area. Again, the handy location of being near a major road made it a good location to develop infrastructure along. St Mary's Spittal served the area of Bishopsgate and is where Spitalfield specifically gets its name from today. A record book recording London's churches in the 15th century describes the parish hospital as being for poor men. The hospital fell into disrepair and was eventually demolished. When the Great Fire of London swept through the city in 1666, with Spitalfields being one of few places not destroyed, thousands of displaced people set up camp here. The area was granted permission to hold a market selling fowl, flesh and roots. With countless numbers of Flemish and French Huguenots arriving in the 1700s and bringing their new skills and silk weaving to the area, the market became a symbol for luxurious silks and it's even said that Mozart bought his own silk waistcoat from here. 100 years later, there was a large migration to the area by the Jewish community, and at one point, Spitalfields was the largest Jewish community in all of Europe, with some 40 synagogues. With the invention of the sewing machine, Jews also contributed to the area's trade in manufacturing and clothing, And again, the market was at the heart of this. By the 1800s, the market had fallen into the hands of Robert Horner, who built its iron and glass roof to protect people from the outside weather. He also oversaw the construction of the Horner buildings, which saw a new era of trade coming to the area in arts and crafts. The market was taken over by the City of London in the 1920s and saw the last fresh produce sold here in 1991. Today, you can still find a mixture of crafts as well as regular vintage and antiques markets too. I wasn't expecting the market to be what it was. A wonderful mix of classic clothing and knick-knack stalls full of food stalls from all over the world. A wide range of beer and ale stands and a whole host of restaurants and facilities. This place makes you feel happy, and being a roofed market is perfect for any time of year. Depending on the direction you come from, you may have to go through a few untourist spots to get here, but there was no trouble, and it's well worth making the journey. Spitalfields Market in its current form has been around since 1638, when King Charles gave licence to sell flesh, fowl and roots in what was a rural area of East London previously. Growth in population size and density towards the end of the 17th century saw the market grow in size and importance, serving the people of this new thriving suburb. Now, selling fresh produce was moved in 1991 to New Spitalfields Market in Leighton and is now far more the image of a modern industrial wholesaler, whilst the old market has become more closely associated with arts, crafts and fashion, much like Greenwich and Camden discussed in previous episodes. Spitalfields has a long history of clothing manufacture, with the French Huguenots working as silk weavers to the Jewish cloth manufacturers you mentioned earlier, Misha. And many famous clothing brands have originated in Spitalfields, including All Saints, a personal favourite brand of mine. Also, in reference to your work on the Roman origins of the area, Misha, did you know that in 2013, the identification of the first person from Rome known to have been buried in England was found there? A 25-year-old lady buried in a lead-lined sarcophagus. Mm, how interesting. I didn't know that, actually. See, we're always learning something new. Christ Church in Spitalfields was constructed between 714 and 1729 and is said to be one of the first churches built after an act was passed by Parliament calling for the construction of 50 churches in areas outside the centre of London. One of the reasons was because of London's rapid expansion 
but also because of the new arrivals to the area who were seen to not be practicing the religion correctly. As we've already touched on, but we'll go into much more detail about, there have been large migrations of new communities to the area and it was seen that they were bringing their non-conformist culture with them. And so it was decided to build a towering Christ church in the heart of Spitalfields to demonstrate the authority of the Anglican church and to serve the godless thousands in their own words. Since its construction in the 1700s, Christ Church has undergone two major redevelopments. The first, in 1866, saw the architect of the National Gallery, Ewan Christian, removing many interior features and making the space much larger inside. The second major refurbishment lasted 28 years. That's 13 years longer than the original church took to build. From 1976 to 2004, this redevelopment saw Christ Church return to its former glory as when it was first built. During this time, the church remained largely unused. Parish services were resumed in the 1980s, but it wasn't open to the public until later. The reconstruction was so well done, it earned several awards. The organ, which had stood in the original church, hadn't been played since the 1960s, but after being restored as well, it returned to be played in 2014. The crypts beneath this church are quite special in that they offer us a few different stories from over the years. Crypts are places beneath churches where people are buried, but during World War II, people were sheltering crypts from bombings. With some years later, in 1965, the crypts were used to treat homeless, alcoholic men. In the 1980s, up to 1,000 bodies were excavated from the crypts, making this the most comprehensively post-medieval crypt that has been examined by archaeologists. First thing you note as you walk from Liverpool Street Station down Brushfield Street toward the church is how out of scale it is compared with the surrounding neighbourhood. This is on purpose. The Church of England built this church during a period in the early 1700s when this area had been populated by French Huguenot immigrants fleeing Catholic persecution. The Huguenots were a Protestant sect without allegiance to the state church. Christ Church Spitalfields was specifically intended to point out who was boss in London, the Church of England. Compare the scale and grandeur of the church with the modest scale of the old Huguenot church a mere block away at the end of Fernier Street, where it meets Brick Lane. It's now the Brick Lane Mosque. When I first visited this area in the early 90s, Christchurch Spitalfields was closed. I don't believe that even church services were held there anymore. During the late 90s and last decade, the place was progressively restored and is now its grand old self. Christchurch is one of my favourite buildings in London. It hasn't quite the size or impact of St Paul's Cathedral or even Westminster Abbey, but its white stone facade and the massive pointed spire is really something to behold. You can really appreciate the simplicity of Nicholas Hawksmoor's design. The church itself is plain and rectangular. The front, with inspiration taken from ancient Greece and Rome, has large Tuscan columns holding up the massive steeple, which is more Gothic than classical in its design. So tell us more about the man behind the building, Dan. Who exactly was Nicholas Hawksmoor? What's his story? So Nicholas Hawksmoor is one of the most revered British architects of the 18th century and was one of the principal developers of the English Baroque style of architecture. Originally from Nottingham, Hawksmoor became the clerk of the famous Sir Christopher Wren and when his genius was recognised at the early age of 18. Hawksmoor worked on Chelsea Hospital, St Paul's Cathedral, Hampton Court Palace and Greenwich Hospital before beginning his work under the 1711 Act of Parliament to build 50 new churches. Under the Act, Hawksmoor built six, the best of which was certainly Christchurch. The word refugee was first used in the English language in relation to the French Protestant group, the Huguenots, who fled from persecution in France during the 17th century. The group had survived the French Wars of Religion just 20 years previously, where they had faced mild discrimination. 
But when King Louis XIV came to the throne, he revoked the agreement which had been signed, which had largely gave Protestants equal rights to Catholics. So this forced Protestants to convert. Those who didn't convert faced death, with a large proportion being killed and up to half a million fleeing to various countries across Europe. There are records of 13,000 Huguenots settling in England, mainly in the East London area of Shoreditch, with those wealthier going to Soho. To England, Huguenots brought their skill of silk weaving, learned in the greatest silk factories at the time, found in Lyon, France. Setting up home in the buildings today marked with wooden window shutters, they began creating a thriving industry in the area, which competed and even threatened that in France. They taught locals their valued skill and are known for playing a huge role in the clothing industry in the East End, including supplying taffeta, which was a popular item at the time. Today, they are considered to have been the largest religious migration to England. Whilst the British did welcome the group, especially after hearing stories of the brutalities they had faced, it did become a strain to accommodate the many displaced people. In a bid to find a solution, British authorities and Huguenot leaders looked to the colonies for an answer. In 1700, a ship full of 207 Huguenots set sail for America from Gravesend in Kent. Settling in Virginia, Today, there are many who descended from the Huguenots who fled France. Wow, I thought I was Welsh on my father's side until today. I found a ship passenger list with one of my relatives on it called Peter and Anthony. List of all ye passengers from London to James River, Virginia, being French refugees embarked in the ship ye Peter and Anthony, Galley of London. That's what it read. Apparently, my relative was alone when he came here at the age of 20, a Huguenot in exile. No idea what happened to his family or anything. Really makes me wonder how he ended up here alone. Pretty sad. He was born in 1680 in France and arrived here in 1700. Can only thank the British people for accepting my ancestors and allowing them refuge. I'd still love to visit France one day. Damn. With your background in history, you have a specific interest in religion and French history, don't you? So can you outline why the French Huguenots were persecuted during the 17th and 18th century? It would be my pleasure. So France, before the revolution, was a country ruled by a monarchy that was historically deeply Catholic. Furthermore, the power of the church in French society was almost absolute. The clergy themselves were referred to as the first estate and enjoyed rights above even that of the nobility who were referred to as the second estate. When Louis XV ascended to the throne at only two years of age, the Archbishop of Rouen finally found a sympathetic ear in Louis Henri, the Duke of Bourbon, who was serving as Prime Minister at the time. So Louis Henry gave the Archbishop permission to draw up a general law against heresy, and this resulted in the persecution of the Huguenots. Historians estimate that the number of French Protestants sent to the gallows during the periods was around 2,000 people. And hence a mass immigration to England. Exactly. Thanks, Dan. Brick Lane, making up the heart of Shoreditch, has been known as this name since 1550. As we've just discovered, and will continue to, the area has seen various waves of immigration from the Huguenots to the Irish and Jews, each leaving their own mark on the area. The most recent of these migrations occurred in the late 20th century and still very much has an influence on the area. The migration of Bangladeshi people to the East End largely came about after the partition of India and the subcontinent, which later led to the creation of modern states Pakistan and Bangladesh. Up to two million people are thought to have been killed, with a further 14 million displaced, making this the largest mass migration of people in human history. The effects of this divide were catastrophic, and with this, their futures were now uncertain. 
Many from the Greater Silhet region in northeast Bangladesh made the journey to England in search of work and security. At first, mostly men made the journey, with their loved ones following after they had settled. When East Pakistan went to war with West Pakistan in what has been called the Liberation War, again there were those who chose to make England their new home as they sought safety. The result of this war saw East Pakistan break away and the state of Bangladesh was founded in 1971. Their settlement in the UK hasn't always been easy. Faced with overcrowded accommodation and racism, things hit crisis level in the area after a Bangladeshi textile worker had been murdered in a racially aggravated attack. There was also a growing National Front influence in the area at this time, with members standing for election in 43 council seats. In 1978, there were large protests by the Bangladeshi community against the treatment they were facing. Since these more testing times, the community has definitely gone on to leave their mark in places like Bradford, Luton and East London, with many fondly referring to Brick Lane as Banglatown. Along Brick Lane today, you can find many of the top curry houses in the country, and it's definitely worth a look in the local markets here too. I am in a junction, and in my right, if I go and follow this Wentworth Street, I'll end up going to the Petticoat Lane Market. And if I come back to the junction, right here, where I am here, this is the Bangla Town Gate. Really look at the color. The color co combination, green and red, which is the flag of Bangladesh. This is a bookstore and video and CD store called Sangeeta. Sangeeta wasn't here before. It was on the other side of the brick leg. And it, it was the only shop where we can buy books. But interestingly enough, whenever anything happened, people used to come here to buy Bangladeshi flag. And uh, uh, they have got nice display, which is, which is brought from Bangladesh. All these boats, and they are from Bangladesh. And it was really, once upon a time, it was really popular. Now people don't buy books. East London has truly been a new home for those that have needed it throughout the centuries time and time again. It really does represent one of the best aspects of British culture and our inclusiveness. The partition of India resulted in one of the worst displacements of human life in recent memory. Would you care to elaborate on its causes, Dan? The partition of India and the creation of Pakistan in the aftermath of independence is a conflicting story of triumph by Gandhi and Nehru alongside the historic inability to offer protection and integration of Muslim communities within India. The result was the call for a separate Muslim state upon independence by Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Indian Muslim League. Gandhi and Nehru, both being strong proponents of national self-determination, eventually accepted the creation of a separate Muslim state, and thus Pakistan was established in 1947 in the northwest Punjab region. There's quite a few conflicting figures in this story, isn't there? But how did this all result in the displacement of 14 million people? Well, you have to understand that Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs were dotted all around the massive country of India and had to move hundreds of miles in many cases to their respective new nations, around 14 million of them in fact. Sectarian violence resulted as the government was completely unequipped to deal with such massive migration, with religious retributions occurring on both sides of the dividing line between the newly established Pakistan and India. So those that went on to settle here today then really have had a difficult past. In 1888, the serial killer Jack the Ripper was stalking these very streets, looking for victims. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. On the 8th of September at 6am, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered on Hanbury Street, making this the closest ripper murder to Brick Lane. Annie had had an unfortunate life. Divorcing her husband just two years earlier, in 1886, she moved to Whitechapel to start a new life. Here, she met and began dating a man who made wire sieves. She moved in with him and was somewhat comfortable as she collected an allowance from her ex-husband of 10 shillings each week. When her husband died of alcohol abuse, she stopped receiving any money and not soon after, her current boyfriend left her. Having to stand on her own two feet, she moved into a lodging house in the area and made a living by crocheting, selling flowers and also prostitution. On the same night of her death, Annie found that she was unable to pay the rent and so she went out that night to look for work on the streets. The landlord says this was at about 1.45am. She was then last seen at 5.30am talking to a man who another witness describes as over 40 and a little taller than Chapman with dark hair and a foreign, shabby, genteel appearance. Just half an hour later, she would be found dead. Fortunately, it seemed back in 1800s, people were up early to work, and so there were several other witnesses that say they heard something coming from the backyard of 28 Hanbury Street. The neighbour at number 27 says he heard voices followed by something falling onto the fence. When market porter John Davis found Annie not long after, she had been brutally attacked. Pills that she had used for a lung condition lay beside her, next to a piece of muslin and a comb. She had sustained typical horrific ripper injuries, with her neck slit from left to right and her intestines thrown over her shoulders. Part of her uterus was also missing. Annie is the second identified murder of Jack the Ripper, with three further murders following over the next month. This is seen by most as the biggest unsolved murder mystery in recent history. Although in 2015 there have been claims linked to DNA evidence that the so-called Jack the Ripper was actually Francis Craig. In the law of the five women confirmed victims of the Ripper, Annie Chapman is generally regarded as an aggressive, argumentative drunk with a nasty streak a mile wide. 
outspoken, mean-natured and unattractive both in personality and looks. I think this is unfair. I think we have to remember that she began drinking when her daughter died and then ended up on the streets when her marriage ended and she was separated from her children. Who wouldn't be soured by that? And, once again, I'd like to remind people that her story was not an unusual one for the period, that the streets of London and every city in the country teemed with dispossessed and unsupported women, the natural consequence of a society without a proper welfare system in place and an almost fastidious disregard for the needs of the helpless and less fortunate. So, for those of us that have been living under a rock and don't know Dan, what is the story of Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper is one of England's most notorious serial killers and has entered our history as a near-mythological entity now. The name originated from a letter to the media which claimed to be the serial killer operating in East London. However, this has now been widely believed to be a hoax by journalists simply engineered to gain interest in the story. All of Jack's victims were prostitutes working in East London and suffered the calling card signs of slit throats and abdominal mutilations. It is one of the earliest and most famous examples of national media coverage of a serial killer in England and is one of the reasons why Jack the Ripper has, over time, become part of British culture and history. And today you can even find various Jack the Ripper tours throughout the Whitechapel area showing you all the places in which he committed his crimes. There were five confirmed victims of the Ripper, however it has been speculated that there were likely far more. The legacy of Jack the Ripper actually resulted in some positive developments in East London as the killings drew attention to the slum and overcrowding in the area and eventually resulted in a degree of improvement and modernisation in the 19th and 20th centuries. As we know, outer London didn't really start to become urbanised until the Industrial Revolution. So if you came back to Brick Lane in 1666, looking around, there wouldn't have been much more than fields in view. That was until the Black Eagle Brewery was built. Built in the same year as the Great Fire of London, William Bucknell was the first owner of the brewery, with the brew house soon changing hands to Joseph Truman, whose family would remain in charge for many centuries to come. At first, it was Joseph's own sons, Benjamin and Joseph Jr., who entered into the family business, almost 40 years after their father had first made the purchase back in 1679. With Porter Beer becoming increasingly popular at the time, the brewery saw a period of rapid expansion. A type of porter we probably know best today is Guinness. And this style of beer was developed in London using brown malt. This was the first ever beer to be aged by the brewery, where before this you had only typically received aged beer direct from the server. The drink, being commonly drunk by street and river porters, gets its nickname from them. With the drink's popularity, London breweries began making a fortune, And by 1760, the company was churning out 60,000 barrels of beer each year. Benjamin was a branding genius, making Truman's beer the drink of the royals. Benjamin was knighted that same year, showing the influence this brewman had. When Benjamin died in 1780, the brewery passed into the hands of his assistant, James Grant, for caretaking. Sampson Hanbury eventually took over its management, which saw another era of growth for this East End brewery. Purchasing a steam engine for the company in 1805, this meant that they could now supply even more people across the country. With the help of the industrial age, the brewery was now making 400,000 barrels of beer every year. Becoming known as Truman, Hanbury, Buxton & Co. from 1889, production continued here for another 100 years until it was forced to close its doors in 1989 thanks to increasing popularity of lager and competition from abroad. The once well-loved porter that the city had been famous for producing simply wasn't the drink of choice for locals anymore. Thankfully, In 2010, 
two businessmen purchase the Truman brand, opening a new brewery in Hackney Wick. They aim to bring back the quality beer the area was once well known for. I guess ever since I was a kid, there's been beer around me. My granddad was a home brewer when I was little and um, growing up, we've always sort of gone to the pub and all that sort of thing as a family. So yeah, there's always been beer about. The first sort of home brews that I was doing was uh, the awful kit beers and um, I kind of thought I could do better than that and, and started working with all grain beers with John. Um, and we made beers that we think our, thought our friends would enjoy the best um, and that's the kind of beers that we've always stuck to ever since really. I think Hackney Brewery, we tried to make um, delicious, tasty beer, uh, the kind of beer that you'd go to the bar, have a pint, go back to the bar and think, actually, yeah, I'll have another one of those. So it's easily drinkable, tasty, and the kind of beer that you want more of. Even with the Truman Brewery, we can see the influence of immigration and multiculturalism in East London. In the mid-18th century, the Huguenots introduced a new beverage flavoured with hops imported from Belgium, before farmers in Kent caught on and began to produce their own. The brewery has even been immortalised in Dickens's work, David Copperfield, with Mrs Micawber making a specific reference to the brewery. It was also included in the Jack the Ripper fictional TV series Ripper Street in 2015, where protective employees harassed and killed publicans who had changed suppliers. We can really see how central the brewery is to the history of East London and all the great historical stories interwoven within. Born in Essex in 1786, we are discussing the former house of Thomas Fowl Buxton, who was involved in the abolition of slavery. Being educated at a top university and being a Quaker, Thomas was introduced to a leading Quaker family of the time, the Gurneys. He particularly became good friends with Joseph Gurney. Now, if you turn over a £5 note, on the back you will find Joseph's sister, Elizabeth Fry, who was a staunch campaigner for prison reform. And standing beside her is Thomas, who supported her in her endeavours for reform. Moving to Norfolk in his late teens, this is where Thomas felt most at home. When he was 21, he married Joseph's other sister, Hannah. It's around then that Thomas became a partner in the Truman and Hanbury Brewery on Brick Lane, lending his surname Buxton to the company for a time. By 1818, Thomas had become MP for Weymouth, a position he held for almost 20 years. Already with a name for social campaigning, Thomas wasted no time once he was a member of Parliament in establishing the Society for the Extinction of the Slave Trade and in joining the campaign team of William Wilberforce. Thomas took over from Wilberforce in leading the anti-slavery party in Parliament once Wilberforce had retired in 1824. Buxton knew that if he was ever to see the abolition of all slavery, then he would need a different approach to Wilberforce. The Slave Trade Act of 1807 actually did little to stop slavery from happening. Instead, European powers directed their ships to places like Cuba and Brazil. It would take another 60 years for this to end. At this time, slaves were viewed as property, and if the government decided they were going to confiscate property, then the slave owners would have to be compensated. Whilst Britain was experiencing major debt issues thanks to the Napoleonic Wars, it was eventually decided that each slave owner would receive paid compensation for freeing their so-called property. Meanwhile, on the plantations, owners were struggling to suppress uprisings for much longer and so a resolution was urgently needed. No one person should be credited for the abolition of the slave trade. It was an ongoing struggle, lasting many years. Whilst Thomas Fowle Buxton was the leader of the parliamentary group which pushed and eventually saw the private bill being realised, 
which ended slavery, we should remember that it was combined efforts of many nameless people that also helped. In Parliament, he laboured for the improvement of prison discipline, for the amendment of the criminal code, for the suppression of Sartis in India, for the liberation of Hottentots in southern Africa, and above all, for the emancipation of 800,000 slaves in the British dominions. The energies of his mind were afterwards concentrated on a great attempt to extinguish the slave trade in Africa, by the substitution of agriculture and commerce, and by the civilising influence of the gospel. Exhausted in mind and body, he fell asleep, reposing his faith on his Redeemer, in the 59th year of his age. This monument is erected by his friends and fellow labourers at home and abroad, assisted by the grateful contributions of many thousands of the African race. Sir Buxton is a wonderful figure to focus on to draw many social elements that dominated East London and Shoreditch during the 19th century. The origins of the anti-slavery movement in England were more humble than one would expect. Buxton helped found the Society for the Mitigation and gradual abolition of slavery. It all sounds very reserved in English, doesn't it? Quote-unquote, mitigation and gradual reduction of slavery. <laughs> it certainly does. It wasn't until 1823 in the House of Commons that Buxton let loose, issuing a resolution condemning slavery as repugnant to the British constitution and Christian religion. He pressured the government to send dispatches to the colonies to begin improving the treatment of slaves and the call for its gradual abolition. Buxton took over as leader of the abolition movement in the British House of Commons after William Wilberforce retired in 1825, achieving his eventual goal of the official abolition in the British Empire in 1883. In 1290, King Edward I made an official order to expel all Jews from England. This order remained throughout the medieval times until Thomas Cromwell lifted the ban in 1656, which saw the first waves of Jewish migrants returning to the country. In contemporary history, we mostly only hear about two periods of anti-Semitism. Back when Moses was fleeing from the Egyptians and then the Nazi persecution and Holocaust. This is a very simplistic way to look at things because anti-Semitism is a problem which has been rife throughout Europe for centuries. Before World War I, from the 1880s, more than two million Jewish people left Eastern Europe in search of a life which offered better economic prospects and less persecution of their faith. With the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881, pogroms erupted across Russia and neighbouring countries, and so many felt no other choice but to flee. Following in the footsteps of the Huguenots a century earlier, many Jews made the journey to England in the late 19th century, setting up home in Spitalfields. The area was chosen for the cheap rent, as well as the fact that there had been a Jewish community in the area from previous migrations. But this was a temporary stop for most, with the majority making the journey to America. Just 120,000 Jewish people stayed behind, making the East End their home. Mainly settling around Wentworth Street, about a 10-minute walk from Brick Lane, in 1900, Jewish people made up 95% of the population in surrounding streets. The Jewish community was not as welcomed as the Huguenots had been, and by 1905, British authorities had pushed the Aliens Act through Parliament, which introduced immigration controls for the first time. The Jewish community held on to their traditions becoming involved in the rag trade and clothing industries in the area. They also brought their traditional food, such as bagels, pickled cucumbers and salted herrings. Whilst the majority of the Jewish population has moved on to other areas, such as Golders Green and Hendon, the area around Spitalfields still has its traces of the community, with many synagogues still remaining in the area. 
And there was one at 19 Princeless Street, which has since been converted into the Museum of Immigration and Diversity. Yeah, my name is Samir and I've been doing the baking business for over 45 years. I came from the Holy Land and uh, we work in the bakery and we learn and, and we, that's how we know how to make bacon. Well, Brickland used to be a Jewish area years ago and there was a lot of Jewish bakers around here, but you don't find them today. And uh, we learn how to deal with customer, with baking, with everything. There's two things uh, to attract customers. The first thing is the price. The second thing is the quality. Perhaps one of the most notable and incredible figures of Jewish migration during the 18th and 19th century was that of Nathan Meir Rothschild, the third-born son to the Meir Rothschild, the founder of the most wealthy dynasty in human history. He was sent to England in 1798, importing 20,000 worth of capital, equivalent to £1.9 million today. Nathan became a naturalised citizen in 1804 and established a bank in the city of London, enhancing the family's ability to operate across Europe. And the Rothschild's London branch were able to gain incredible wealth through financing Wellington's armies in Portugal, a trait which seems to have been repeated. Yeah, Nathan was the beginning of the great Rothschild's dynasty in London, with his sons spreading the most powerful banking institutions in Europe. N.M. Rothschild and sons, he was sent them to Naples, Paris, Frankfurt and Vienna, all operating out of the head in the London branch. Standing on the last site in today's tour of Shoreditch, we are now on Curtain Road. Back in the 16th century, this area was called Curtain Close, which is probably why the street name has retained its Curtain prefix. Now, if you were wandering around here back in 1577, you would have come across the most popular theatre in all of London at the time. The first ever public playhouse to be built in London was called The Theatre and sat a mere 200 yards from the site of Curtain Theatre. So it would seem the East End was definitely the place to be in Elizabethan times if you were looking for some theatrical entertainment. Curtain Theatre was used for a whole 47 years, giving it the longest history of use out of all the great theatres being used at this time. Whilst we don't know much about its construction, we would expect it to have had a timber frame being built several storeys high to accommodate the galleries. Once the theatre next door had closed its doors, the famous Lord Chamberlain's men made this venue their home for the next two years. The Lord Chamberlain's men are well known because William Shakespeare wrote plays for them to perform to for the majority of his life. This connection makes it almost certain that Shakespeare himself would have been sitting amongst the crowds in the curtain, with Romeo and Juliet being performed and Henry V making its debut here. Curtain Theatre flourished for 20 years, only experiencing problems when the bubonic plague swept through the country. And so the theatre didn't see much use from 1592 to 94. With the Globe being built in Southwark in 1599, the Lord Chamberlain's men moved on. But the area was still an attraction for theatre goers. With this part of East End very much laying the foundations for the West End much later on. Once Curtain Theatre closed its doors around 1625, records become sketchy with all known trace of the theatre itself being lost until a few years ago. In 2011, with plans to develop the land, archaeological digs were underway and three metres beneath the surface, foundations were found for this Elizabethan playhouse. Now, Shoreditch doesn't just have a past with theatres, but it was also once home to the best furniture producers in the country. These streets in particular became the centre of a thriving industry that would last for over a hundred years. 
But get heading out to IKEA or logging on to made.com. If you wanted furniture in the past, Shoreditch was the place to go. Today, if you look at the buildings that remain, you will notice the huge windows with many floors. This is a legacy of the furniture industry, with these Victorian warehouses showcasing the latest trends in cabinets and wooden chairs and other pieces for the home. For the first time, furniture was being mass-produced and so customers were free to browse amongst the goods rather than having to wait for a bespoke piece to be made. Whilst the area was at the heart of trade for a century, after a steady decline it eventually collapsed in the 1980s and most showrooms today have been turned into trendy bars, restaurants and studios. The building had quite an interesting life. We don't really know who built it or when. We know it was operating in 1577 and later in the 1590s became home to the Chamberlain's Men, one of the most famous actors, I guess, being William Shakespeare. So we know some of his plays, like Romeo and Juliet and Henry V, were performed here. So we know the building carried on as a playhouse up into the 1620s, but we don't actually know, or we didn't know until we started digging the site, what happened to it at the end of its life. This is a really special site for several reasons. One is obviously it's the site of the Curtain Theatre and that's one of only a handful of these Elizabethan and Jacobean playhouses. And the other is what's going to happen to these remains once we've finished digging them. Once we've dug down to the 16th century remains, they'll be briefly covered up and then they'll be incorporated into a purpose-built visitor centre, which is at the heart of this new redevelopment. So we're back again onto one of your favourite subjects, Dan, show business. (laughs) Yeah, we certainly are. And we're looking at where public performing basically started in England. Archaeologists uncovered the site in 2012 during a trial excavation. And in 2013, plans were submitted to develop the site with a 40-storey tower of 400 apartments alongside a Shakespeare museum and a 250-seat outdoor auditorium and park. The archaeological site still remains visible in a glass enclosure called the Stage Shoreditch. And can you imagine performing in one of those open-air Elizabethan playhouses? I wish I'd had the experience, Misha. Um, The Curtain Theatre enters our history alongside places like Shakespeare's Globe as one of the best links that we have to ancient English art. Wow. So here it is, the end of the Unarchived History mini-podcast series. I really can't thank everyone enough to all the team that has been involved in making this all possible, from everyone at the Shoutout Network to our fantastic team of history researchers, and also, of course, to my fabulous co-host, Dan. Well, thank you too, Misha, for getting me involved from the offset. It really has been a brilliant experience, and I've really loved every minute of working with you. But remember, it doesn't just stop here. On Archive, we'll be continuing to share the history of each local place on our website and across social media. Head to www.onarchive.co and search for your local area and be inspired by the past with some fantastic stories of local heroes. We guarantee you'll learn something you didn't know before. And I can't stress how much it means to us that you go out there and learn about your own history. There really is nothing more important than getting to know and understand your past. And don't always take everything you see and read straight away at face value, as everyone has their own perspective. So do go out there and really explore and speak to real people in order to get the truth. Yeah, and please do keep sharing your local history stories with us by sending an email to info at anarchive.co. Misha will also be taking a periscope on a regular basis after this, bringing you historical places live across London. So give us a follow at an archived. Yes, I can't wait for that. Expect to see some of your usual city sites, such as Buckingham Palace and the Tower of London. But I'll also be taking you on a journey around some of the more quirkier locations, like the Jeffrey Museum and the Old Operator Museum. And if you've enjoyed everything you've listened to on the podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes and write a comment on SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. And who knows, we might be back very soon.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money. 